0: It's time to hit the trail, as we present your monthly dose of travel, tourism, wine and dine. This is Travel Radio Australia. Here's your host, Rens Veers. And welcome to the programme. We are going to Sydney, we're going to New York, we're going to England and uh, i'll also be speaking to somebody who's been all over the world that's all coming up in this edition of Travel Radio Australia here's Jeff Harrison to start the program all the way from Sydney
1: this week we're broadcasting from the historic rocks area in sydney right underneath the sydney harbour bridge and i have with me as my guest this week at the fabulous observer hotel gavin andrews who is the bar manager here at this great pub. Gavin, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Now, Gavin, tell us about some of the great goings on here. I know that uh, this is a great destination for people to come to in the Rocks if they're heading to Sydney.
2: Uh, we have live music. It's a fun, um, upbeat place. Lots of different people can't come, come in, lots of tourists, famous people. Yes, tell us about some of the famous people who you've seen come through. Uh, we've had Pink. Uh, we've had uh, Rob Thomas,
1: David Attenborough, Brian Krauss out of Charmed. Yeah, just yeah. quite a few people who are because they love the atmosphere here and it's a it's a lovely old historic pub and we're, from where we're sitting uh, here at the um, the front of the hotel, uh, you can have a fabulous view of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Virtually the whole bridge is, uh, is there and it must be just gorgeous. We're here in the late afternoon but on a beautiful sunny day, the view is magnificent. Yeah, it's great down here and I think appeals to most people, yeah. Tell us a bit about uh, the background of the pub, I believe it was um, you know, pulled down in, back in 1901 and then rebuilt and it's been through a few uh, things being in such a historic area. It was established in 1848. I used to believe that it was
2: pulled down because of the plague but then I just read the sign and it said that it, it um, was built pulled down to Widen, middle lane the uh, street next to it. Supposedly years ago um, when the morgue across the road was full, they used to store the dead bodies down here and we have our own resident ghost. Yes, tell us about that. What's the ghost story? She's pretty active. She um, calls out my name sometimes. She moves things around. We actually had on CCTV footage where the fridge flies open, the steaks come out of the fridge and then shuts again. You're kidding. And, and is there a name to this uh, person? Well, we believe it is a lady that died here in 1948 or something like that. Edna, partner at the
1: time, accidentally shot her. What And she was staying here in the pub? Supposedly, yeah. And how does that work when, is it when you're, you know, back uh, in the back rooms or something and you hear Go in! What, well, what's it like? Uh, well, it just
2: usually sounds like a staff member, but I've always asked the staff member did they call out to me and they never, they haven't.
1: Ooh, that's a bit creepy.
2: And I usually do a check upstairs, probably about half an hour before we close and a few on a few occasions, just before I leave, the door upstairs slams, so all the doors and
1: windows are closed. Oh weird, that's, but that's great, people love that sort of thing and uh, hopefully Edna's looking over us now and uh, she's having a quiet drink in the background oh, somewhere I'm Always nice to her <laughs> <laughs> That's right, now singing is legendary at the Rocks pub, <laughs> not for you I know but, but people come here and it must get pretty raucous sometimes when they start singing the songs late at night No it's great, it's a great atmosphere, everyone gets into it and has a great time and some of the traditional songs they sing, what, what are some of those? I believe some of the opera, operas get get a go and all sorts of things. Well, there's always K-San, there's always
2: Brown Eyed Girl, American Pie, Sweet Home Alabama and Johnny Cash
1: songs, always. That's great. So people can come down here and just uh, sit here right at the foot of the bridge with a tremendous view and it must be great at night. We're here in the, it's not quite dark yet, but um, at night with all the lights on the bridge must be magnificent. Oh, that's great, yeah really good. And how can people find out more about the Observer Hotel here at the Rocks in Sydney online? Uh, you can go to our website on www observahotel.com.au Gavin Andrews, the bar manager here at the uh, Observer Hotel. It's a lovely place. Make sure you come and see him and say hello. Gavin, thanks for being part of the program.
0: No worries. Jeff Harrison reporting from Sydney, and we'll have him back in the Harbour City later on in the show chatting with uh, a backpacker, a random backpacker, which uh, should give us an interesting perspective on what people think about Sydney. Let's cross over to our associates at Travel Writers Radio and Peter Watson interviewing Billy Rosenfeld about some musical productions in New York. This is Travel Radio Australia.
3: Encores is a a concert series of musicals in New York that's been going on for about 22 years now. They do three shows a year, and they do concert versions of shows that might otherwise not get revived or produced because the book didn't work, or it's too it's too big TV. of a show, or whatever. So these are adaptions, aren't they? They are adaptation concert yeah. adaptations. adaptations, and and what it is, it's trimming the fat um, is what it comes down to, and um, they did a. a I have a a fairly long history with um The Most Happy Fella which is a it's musical by about, yeah. which is a musical by Frank Lesser who wrote Guys and Dolls and the score to the movie Hans Christian Andersen and he's one of the great Broadway songwriters um, and The Most Happy Fella is a masterpiece it's a gorgeous gorgeous amazing show and he did the book music and lyrics and it's based on a play called They Knew What They Wanted by Sidney Howard, which had won a Pulitzer Prize and was made into a film with Carol Lombard. And um, when it opened in 1956, it got wonderful reviews. Unfortunately, about six weeks after it opened, a show called My Fair Lady opened. (laughs) And sort of blew it away? And blew it away. And so Most Happy Fella had a decent run, a good, healthy run um and it was it's always it's done around usually mostly by opera companies because it kind of merges opera and musical comedy. Um but it's not well known. But anyone who's ever been in it or who loves musical theater and sees it, it becomes one of their favorite shows. But it's never at the top of the list. Um and it's an extraordinary work. And when I was at RCA, um I recorded the smash hit revival of Guys and Dolls that in 1992, um, and it was a huge hit, but also that year was a, a, a revival of Happy Fella that was a two piano version, not an orc- orchestral version. And through that, I got to know Joe Sullivan Lesser, who was Frank Lesser's widow, and um, we got along great. We I, I loved working with her. She's somebody you cannot Can I say bullshit? Yeah. Yeah. You cannot bullshit with her about anything. And record guys are notorious for being bullshitters. Mm. And she and she was very upfront at our first meeting. She said, Never lie to me. Don't play me. Don't handle me. Mm. Just tell me the truth and I will deal with it. And I took her at her word so that when there were issues. During the Guys and Dolls recording, during the Happy Fellow recording, and then a few years later with the revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, everyone was like, oh, how how are we going to tell this to Joe? And I said, don't worry, I will talk to her. And um, there were only a few times where she dug in her heels about stuff, but for the most part, she was very open and listened and, and pragmatic because her job, she sees her job as preserving Frank's legacy and promoting Frank's legacy. Of course. And she's extraordinary at that. Anyway, um, I have a great relationship with her. We put that aside. I move over to England, um, and I become friends with people at the Ambassador Theatre Group here in London, and they've acquired the rights to a lot of Frank Lesser shows because they have a big program of what they want to do. And one of the shows they acquired the rights to was The Most Happy Fella. And a person uh, who worked at ATG at the time, uh, Tali Pellman, called me and she said, do you know this show? And I said, know it. I love it. I recorded it. I wrote the liner notes. I've done, I've done articles about it. And she said, perfect. We can't make sense of it. We don't understand how it goes from musical comedy to opera. And, would you look at the script and see if you can find a way to merge that? And we've hired Casey Nicola um to direct and choreograph it. And we want to do a workshop of it. And Casey um has gone on to become the co-director of uh, The Book of Mormon, and he's directed which is Aladdin in London at the moment right. right. and and uh, Aladdin, which is on Broadway and a new musical called Something Rotten. And I'd known Casey from his chorus boy days. So I went, oh, sure, Casey and I get along great. Mm-hmm. And we we did a workshop, a week-long workshop of the show with a great group of actors here. And we cut the script and we refined the script. And, we, and when Frank wrote the original, it was at a different time so that he would write parts in for chorus people that he liked so that there would be a girl walks into the barn and goes, what happens over there? Oh, that's where we throw the hay. What happens over there? And it was just like stupid, extraneous stuff. Yeah. In our new world where actors cost money... Take it out. Take it out. And so that's what Casey and I did. And we did this great workshop. Joe Lesser came over. She adored it. And then nothing happened. And um, nothing happened for two years. Uh, two and a half years. And then... At the opening night of Book of Mormon here in London, Casey came over to me and said, Encores is going to do Happy Fella next year. I'm going to direct it, and we're going to use your script. And I went, well, that's the best opening night present anyone could possibly <laughs> have. And... um that's how I got the gig. Um, you know, there was it was a little more complicated, but that's basically how I got the gig. And it ended up being the way they do the shows. They rehearse for ten days, and then they do the, a, a week of performances, and it's over. It. And it was an extraordinary company of um, Shuler Hensley, who um, won a Tony for Oklahoma, Laura Benanti, who uh, won a Tony for Gypsy. Uh, a, a wonderful young actress named Heidi Blickenstaff, who's on Broadway now in Something Rotten, she was fantastic. A great young actor named Jay Armstrong Johnson, who's starring on Broadway and On the Town now, and it was the happiest experience I have ever had in a theater. In large part because nobody, there's no time for anybody to make trouble. It's Broadway boot camp. You have, they have ten days to put on a show. And, and you've got to get it done. And you got to get it done, and it's a show that everybody in the Broadway community comes to see. So you're exposing yourself to the community that means the most to you. And um, I was there every step of the way, and the mantra is, you're here to edit, not to fix. Not to fix. Mm-hmm. And so that it became a little dodgy. But there were a couple of things that I did, and... At the first night, I sat with Joe Lesser, Joe Sullivan, and she, she and she could say you can't do that, mm-hmm. and there were a couple of things that I, that I invented, and we just kind of went shh, nobody will notice, nobody will notice, and she would she nudged me like, and I went yeah, and she went good, good, <laughs> <laughs> and so there were no changes there were, everything was fine everything was, everything everything was great not. and it was and critically it was raves across the board um it was commercially other than their week long or their two week long run of Merrily we roll along it was commercially their most successful show but it was 38 actors 38 musicians and it was it wasn't a concert in any way shape or form it was a big Fat Broadway musical and and
4: great. There are so many other things I want to ask you because but we are going to we no doubt we're going to run out of time because I okay. wanted to ask you about drama discs and throwing Tom Hanks off stage and <laughs> and, and, and and all these sort of things. But you write a weekly piece for B-Way
1: Tunes. Or-
3: yes, there's a, a website um, here called B. Uh, no, in the states called B, well, it's the World Wide Web. Yes, World Wide um, Web. It's called bwaytunes.com dot and it its goal is to have every single recording of every single show available for download. Um, whether it's a track or the whole album or whatever. And there are two bloggers, myself and a guy named Eric Hoganson. And, um, happily they give me the topic. So I don't have to sit there going, what am I going to write what about this, write week? this week? They give me a topic and I write six to 800 words on, and, topic. on that topic. And, um, I friends of mine say friends of mine who I don't get to see that often say it's like having coffee with you once a week. Uh, you know, I just I make it very personal. Um, I it's entirely subjective. I don't I'm not mean, um, and that's on purpose because there's no point in being mean. No, of course, and um, I make an assumption that people if they're if they're on a website called com and they're reading my blog. They have some knowledge of the area or they want some knowledge of the area. And I'm there to kind of expand their horizons. And uh, Eric takes a more academic approach in his blogs, but it's a good mix and I love doing it. And it's BwayTunes.com. BwayTunes. And what's the best show in London at the moment? Gypsy with Imelda Staunton. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agree. You can't. You, you know something? If Gypsy's playing in your town and if Imelda Staunton is in it, you just go, and you pay homage.
1: Yeah, that was the most extraordinary performance I've ever seen, actually. I yeah. just, I really, it's, she was just stunning.
3: Yeah, it's it's King Lear. It's it's Shakespearean. It, it, she, and I've seen 12 gypsies in my life. Yeah. And the first one was Angela Lansbury, and she will always be the best, quote-unquote. But Amelda just... Oh my God! And if Patty Lapone is listening, Patty, you were fantastic.
4: <laughs> Did you say um, Angela Ansley was in the audience for opening
3: night? She was. He? She sat two rows behind us, and uh, because I had worked with her a couple of times, and Gary had worked with her quite often, um, we were able to talk to her about it, and 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 we said, "You'll always be the best." And she and she just went actually, no, I, what we've seen tonight is pretty historic <laughs> Gary was a Broadway producer, was he not? Yes, he was yeah, did he produce some pretty big shows um the Who's Tommy? he was the executive producer of The Who's Tommy and Jekyll and Hyde, which ran five years and he was uh he produced a lot of road tours in the states as well, and um he was a Broadway general manager for uh Cage, Danson. Um, a lot of concert things.
1: So you've, you've both come up in musicals and theatre and uh, and playwrights. Sorry, the name you new play again, the one that's just opening?
3: 46 Beacon at the Hope Theatre in Islington. I hope you get a great run. Billy, thanks for talking to me. My pleasure.
0: And that's segment courtesy of Travel Writers Radio in Melbourne and the International Food, Wine and Travel Writers Association. Francis Beasley is one of our uh, semi-regular contributors And she recently uh, was over in England visiting Rick Stein's restaurant in the town called Padstow.
5: Greetings, it's Frances here, from England this time. Well, the name Rick Stein is synonymous with seafood, Cornwall and increasingly Australia. His television programs have been broadcast worldwide and his constant companion in the early programs was none other than his beloved Jack Russell dog called Chalky. Chalky accompanied him on the boats off the Cornish coast as he set off to source the freshest fish possible to bring back to his first restaurant located in Padstow on the north coast of Cornwall. A bronze statue of Chalky now stands in pride of place outside the entrance to this restaurant as a reminder of his beloved four-footed friend. Today, The simply named Seafood Restaurant is one of the most popular restaurants in England, if not the world, with people coming from all points north, south, east and west to sample the fare. Having celebrated its 40th anniversary in 2015, it's a place that has not only stood the test of time, but has gained the reputation of being Rick Stein's flagship restaurant. With a brigade of around 20 in the kitchen, And doing 180 covers, this restaurant constantly bustles and whilst its prices are not for the faint-hearted, Rick believes firmly in supporting the local community through charitable fundraising events. One such event was to raise money for the local children's hospice. A three-course lunch was offered for an incredibly low price of £19. It proved to be a real winner. With choices of three dishes for all three courses, service in this place is nothing short of awesome and no detail is left to chance. Staff are highly trained, multilingual and do everything in their power to ensure your dining experience is sublime. Whilst I'm not sure that I could cope with paying £54 for lobster for a main course, I was more than happy to sample the charity menu which boasted a definite Asian twist to it, since Rick is currently on a major spice kick with his food. A starter of Amritsari fish, normal price of £12.50, comprised fish cooked in a chickpea batter sprinkled with masala and served with a yummy green chilli chutney, and it sure hit just the right spot. Mains of fillets of place served with serrano ham and peppers, with an olive oil and lemon sauvignon had just the right flavour, with the ham not overpowering the succulent, perfectly cooked place. Normal price for that would have been £23. The dessert of Seville orange tart with yoghurt ice cream, normally £8.90, was a great palate cleanser to end a meal that I will remember for a long time to come. At full price... Without wine, and as you would expect the wine list, is considerable both in terms of choice and price. A meal here is in the upper price bracket. But when you get a chance to sample it at a reduced price, and knowing that a portion goes to charity, it certainly is an experience to savour. The phrase that Rick Stein owns Padstow is often heard, due to the fact that aside from his flagship restaurant where I ate, He also has a bustling cafe, a fish and chip shop, a large gift and deli shop and several accommodation establishments. Padstow certainly owes a lot to him in terms of income. The non-stop tourists have made the quaint, small, attractive harbour a nightmare in summer when people jostle for a place on pavements or in restaurants. However, visit out of season and whilst you may get parking, and I do stress may, you also have the opportunity to enjoy this Cornish village for what it is a small, successful fishing harbour with fine views over the estuary to the distinctly less commercialised but equally successful village with the name of Rock. Padstar now boasts a Michelin star restaurant in the form of Paul Ainsworth at number six, proof indeed that there is a demand for fine dining. Paul also owns and runs a successful Italian restaurant in Padstow as well. There is little doubt that no visitor will go hungry. However, advanced booking is essential at all restaurants in Padstow. With regard to accommodation, stay away from the crowds and take a room at the Metropolitan Hotel with its stunning views down over the harbour and just a short walk into the village itself. It also offers parking and essential as there is highly limited space year-round. But if you want to find out a little bit more about Rick Stein and his various restaurants and accommodation establishments, you can do so directly on his website, which is rickstein.com. Alternatively, you can go to my website, which is piptravelnews.co.za. From me, Francis. Right down in the West Country in England. I wish you goodbye. Until the next time.
0: This is Travel Radio Australia. And my next guest, Ben Southall, is a presenter, digital journalist and uh, adventurer. He first came to our attention when in 2009 he won the world's best job competition, which earned him uh, the right to become caretaker of the islands of the Great Barrier Reef. In 2008, he he, uh, climbed five of Africa's highest mountains and ran five marathons during his circumnavigation of the continent. During 2011, he kayaked 1,600 kilometres along the Great Barrier Reef, retracing Captain Cook's voyage of discovery with the best expedition in the world. He's uh, done lots of other things. He's presented his own series, The Best Job in the World, on Nat Geo's Adventure Channel, And Ben works with the television networks in Australia and writes for a number of print and online communities. Ben has recently returned from his latest adventure, which saw him and his wife Sophie undertake a 55,000 kilometre overland journey from Singapore to London through 32 countries in Colonel Mustard, their 1968 Land Rover. I caught up with Ben on the phone soon after uh, his return to his hometown of Brisbane after that particular epic journey. I'm talking to Ben Southall, who was last on the program oh, more than a year ago uh, uh, when we were on Whitehaven Beach together. Remember those days?
4: Absolutely, yes. Back in the good old wet it's just off that Queensland coast, seems a long time ago.
0: It, it does, but and, but it only seems like yesterday when you set off on your epic fifty-five thousand-kilometer overland journey uh, from Singapore to London. Um, how long were you actually away? You've only just come back very recently, haven't you?
4: Yeah, we got back into Brisbane a week ago, and the entire trip itself uh, started on February the fifth, two 2015. We flew into Singapore. The car arrived in a container from Brisbane about five days later, and we started on February the 10th, this, uh, what ended up being an 11 and a half months journey all the way back to London to the south of England where my parents are in West Sussex, and we wrapped it up about two weeks ago, and then finally flew back to Brisbane. So it's been a long, long journey. and We covered 32 different countries. We've been through hot and cold weather. We've been through the Himalayas, through the Alps, down into the tip of Africa, into Morocco, and then finally finished up with a little bit of a perfect European winter. So it's been a great experience.
0: Now let's talk about your means of transport. Good old Colonel Mustard. Just to let the (laughs) listeners know what Colonel Mustard is. uh, Obviously, it's a car, but... (laughs)
4: Yeah, absolutely. Colonel Mustard has uh, become part of, I suppose, our family life as much as the dog is these days. Um, I originally acquired a 1986 Land Rover Defender in 2004, um, a bright yellow color Land Rover. And at that stage, I knew that I was going to head off on my first adventure called Afrotrex with him. Um, So for three years, I put in a new engine, new gearbox, new axles, stripped out the interior, put new seats in. And on the 27th of December, 2007, I set off by myself from the south of England and started a year-long drive around the whole of the outside of Africa. That ended up being a a 65,000-kilometre journey. Colonel Mustard came back to the south of England. I then heard about this best job in the world competition and flew out to Australia to to claim the top prize for that. And then a year later, decided with some of my winnings to ship Colonel Mustard out to Australia. And since then, we've done a good loop of Australia. And the car itself has now... An um, inner container, and it's due to come back from England in the next few weeks. And by the time it gets back on the mileometer, it's going to have nearly four hundred thousand kilometres. And so far, so good. Considering it's a Land Rover, it's done pretty well.
0: Well, how many nights would you have been uh, actually sleeping in the car in in the last twelve months?
4: We've done a fair few. So um, the, the the deal was that I have a, a tent on the roof. I have a Howling Moon tent on the roof, which is the same sort of tent i use in africa it basically is a a fold-out tent that's got when you open it up it's got a a bed that's nice and firm and nice and comfortable in there it's got a big foam mattress and you're nice and high above all the animals which is an essential thing when you're in africa and not so essential on this last trip but it's still nice to be up in the air because when you open that tent door every morning it's quite nice to look out and and work out where you are you've gone to bed sometimes put the tent up in the dark and you open that zip in the morning and go well where am i today where's my tv screen looking out on today and i think over this trip, we have probably, out of the nearly 360 days that we've been on the trip, I think we probably had at least 200 of those under canvas. So um, varied, different locations, minus three degrees up in the Alps and then about 35, 36 degrees in Malaysia. So it really has been both ends of the spectrum.
0: But you, you weren't always roughing it though because I remember following you uh, online on your blog and on Facebook, etc. Uh, you did sneak out to a few luxury resorts along the way
4: too. Absolutely, of course. I mean, if you're going on a trip like this, um, it's not just about... I mean, we were trying to save money, obviously, wherever we could and try and extend the trip for as long as we could. But having opportunities to work with some of the amazing hotels on the way and working with them, really providing a lot of coverage to our social media channels, writing about them and adding them onto our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter accounts is a good way for us to um, get a little bit of relief. I suppose after you spend two weeks solid in a tent, Sometimes you do desire a nice hot shower, and it's nice to use someone else's toilet for a while, and it's nice to know that when you get to bed at night and you've got the air conditioning on, you're not going to be pouring sweat. So, yeah, we work with some fairly major um, hotels along the way, some really nice ones in India and Singapore and Asia, and then we're finishing up with a few in Europe as well. So it's certainly a good way to break up what I suppose people would deem to be an overland trip, which is based around camping. A lot of it was actually spent um, in backpackers, um, some really lovely hotels, and some great, unique, bespoke areas as well. Some tree houses we stayed in. We stayed in some lovely mountain lodges up in the Himalayas and in India. So it really gave us, I suppose, a bit of diversity in the places we were staying to.
0: Yeah. And now uh, you travel through 33 countries. Uh, of course, we, we could talk all day and, and uh, have you <laughs> on the show every week for the. For uh, for the next twelve months, and still not cover the whole trip, so we we might start at the beginning uh, and and get you back at it on a few future occasions and uh, and and sort of progress along the road, so to speak. But you started off in Singapore in February last year,
4: um, and where'd you head from there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there is there are so many stories to tell um, that you pick up on the road from the chance encounters with amazing people. the problems of bureaucracy to all these amazing things that obviously you have to deal with when you're driving a 30 year old vehicle as well so there's definitely a lot of content there and Singapore was always going to be our starting block it was really based around the fact that I have a Land Rover Defender this was to be the last year the Land Rover Defender was built and actually in 1955 there was a project called First Overland and two teams one from Oxford one from Cambridge University decided to be the first people to ever drive from London all the way to Singapore. So they did that in their Land Rover. They took about four months to do it back in 1955. And I thought it was a fitting end to the life of the Land Rover Defender, as it was its final year of production, to actually retrace that route. So we went from Singapore back to London. um, And after we'd gone through Singapore, very quick and easy to get out. It's only 50 square miles, really, the entire island. So it's not a huge place. So we we dropped across the water into Malaysia, Malaysia itself, we didn't have enough time in, really. I could have spent a couple of weeks extra there. So we dived up into a beautiful area called the Cameron Highlands, which, funnily enough, is a real um, hot spot of Land Rovers. So the Cameron Highlands are, I suppose, the fruit and vegetable basket of Southeast Asia. They sit at about 1,200 metres above sea level, so they're out of the humidity and the heat, but they still get a lot of daylight, they get a lot of sunshine, which means that it's great for year-round fruit and veg production. And there's a high number of Land Rover Defenders there, really, because the government decided that once the British had left in the 40s and 50s, all of the vehicles that they'd left, the army vehicles, they could use. So basically, the farmers bought them, knowing they were great utility vehicles. They had the old coil springs on them. So instead of being the leaf springs, they were really good for carrying lots of load capacity. So the farmers there have still got lots and lots of these Land Rover Defenders from the 50s, 60s and 70s. The government have decided to be very kind to them. They've said, if you use them only for purely farming purposes, we won't charge you any road tax. Yeah. So the farmers have kept hold of them. Um, there's lots and lots of local workshops there which basically repair and look after your Land Rover Defender. So it was a perfect place for me to go within the first three or four weeks of our trip and uh, have something which I suppose made me feel I was getting a little bit soft. I had air conditioning fitted to the car there, and I hadn't had it for all of Africa. I'd never had it in the middle of Brisbane summer, but because we were traveling, my my wife Sophie and I were traveling together, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to give ourselves a bit of a break from the oppressive heat and humidity that you really get in that part of the world. So, yeah, Colonel Mustard left there with a big smile on his face, as did did Sophie and I.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, you you had a bit of a detour in Nepal. Uh, Tell us about that.
4: We did, yeah. So we arrived in Nepal um, about three or four days after the major earthquake on april the 26th last year and we were due to get there a little bit earlier um in the end we heard that obviously there'd been the, the problems in the earthquake and we decided to just postpone our trip a little bit we spent three or four days extra in india in the northeast in darjeeling and it was from there that we felt the earthquake itself so we were six floors up in a hotel and the earth shook very violently and obviously we knew there was something major going on and at that stage, we didn 't realize the, um, the the severity of it that Donald and Katman doing in Nepal and It was only then we decided look this is probably a good opportunity for us to go and um, once we knew that the, the dangers were over and that people were trying to get back on with their lives, we knew that we were there as storytellers. We were there as people that were trying to help tourism as we always have done since Best Job in the World days. We like to go there and experience something and tell people the real story about what's going on. So we spoke to some contacts in Nepal. We spoke to one of the trekking agencies we'd already booked with and said, look, Like millions of other people that are going to come to you this year, we're wondering, do we or don't we come to Nepal? And they said, no, look, we need you now more than anything. Come and tell the story. Come and film the adventure you're going to go on, and hopefully we can use it and the government can use it to tell people that Nepal is open for business very much. We spent the next two or three days driving from the northeast of India all the way into Kathmandu. We passed villages and areas where there had been huge levels of destruction. And we got into Nepal. We got there and... uh, Whilst we were in Kathmandu, the second of the earthquakes happened. That one was on May the 12th, and that was uh, probably about 80% of the force and the strength of the original one. So to be there right in the epicenter, it was was pretty scary, to be honest with you. Very exciting in a way, but also very scary because we knew how many people had lost their lives in the original one. Um, But we went there, and we went on from there, from Kathmandu, and went and did the Annapurna Base Camp Trek and decided to put together a YouTube video just to show that certain areas of the country had not been affected at all. There'd been no landslides, there'd been no wars, collapse, there'd been no injuries or death to people. And these were really the villages and the towns that were suffering the most because after any major disaster, there's this natural vacuum that tourists believe um, is a reason not to visit the country. And it's often those those times where... People are needed the most. The tourist dollar is what Nepal relies on. It really is their biggest major draw card Anything with tourism, they go under it from taxis to hotels to trekking agencies, they rely on that constant income and that cash flow. And as people have decided to cancel their trips, we'd heard from our trekking company that 90% of people that had booked from May through to October had canceled immediately and said, Look, we can't risk it. We don't want to come. And these companies now are really the ones that were suffering in the wake of what had happened with the earthquake. So we went there. We filmed what we saw, Uh, we went and filmed our Annapurna trek and through our YouTube channel we got over 4,000 people that had come there and looked at the video and said to us, can we go, is it safe to go? And we were saying, look, this is the time when you need it the most. So it was good to go and uh, be outside of the danger, to not go there too early, but to actually go and tell the story afterwards of the fact that Nepal was very much open to business.
0: And have you had any updates from that part of the world on uh, whether the tourist trade is starting to recover at all?
4: Strangely enough, I keep in touch with our guide, Raju, who was our guide that took us on the Annapurna Base Camp Trek. Um, He was in touch with me yesterday. He always drops me a message once a week just to say, hi, how are you? Where are you in the world? And I spoke to him yesterday and asked him the question, how are things now? What's happening? Because they usually have a fairly big peak for trekkers between April and May and then again in October and November. So they are looking forward this year to hopefully more bookings, more people coming back. But certainly the two parts of the season where they make their money last year were Uh, the worst on record they really struggled through obviously uh, the initial part of the season was good then the earthquakes came and then everybody fled and left the country so there was this massive void of absolutely no one coming and it was very much repeated in october and november that people were still fearful that there would be landslides they obviously had in their heads that nepal would be a dangerous destination to go to but he said that certainly they've got 40 50 percent of their bookings that they'd have for april and may of next year this year all booked up and ready to go so fingers crossed it's taken 12 months, but hopefully Nepal will get back on track and start to welcome the numbers of tourists that they're used to. Oh,
0: well, that's great news. Well, we, uh, we've got to talk about some future destinations or in a future show about some destinations. A lot of them uh, are countries ending with uh, Stan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, the, our
4: good friend Stan. <laughs> yeah,
0: good friend Stan. There's, uh, there's a, quite a few of those uh, bordering on, onto uh, the Russian Empire. But uh, we'll talk about that in some future program. So, Ben, thanks very much for uh, being on the show today. And we we'll look forward to seeing you very soon.
4: Lovely, Ben. Nice to speak to you news and features from around Australia and around
0: the world. This is Travel Radio Australia.
1: And I'm at the Rocks in Sydney, and I've just run into a couple of girls. One of them is uh, from uh, the south of Paris. Uh, Can you tell us your name and where you're from?
6: Uh, My name is Constance. Uh, I'm from Paris, but I'm living in the south of France now. And we are here for 10 days. Uh, First, we're visiting Melbourne, and now Sydney for one week.
1: And now you're you've here at The Rocks, and I know it's raining a bit today, but uh, what's been your experience?
6: Um, it's very, very cool to be here, because the first time we're visiting Australia. Uh, first of all, it's surprising, because here now in Europe it's winter, so it's very different kind of weather right now. And um, we're coming for, because we are designers, so we're coming for see what's happened here. Uh, what kind of clothing and fashion and trends and things like this. So we are very happy to be here and discover fashion in Australia. And Sydney is a very huge city, very big, more than Paris, actually. And so it's great to, to be things here.
1: And tell us a bit about your designs and your range uh, so the people in Paris can have a look at them at some point. Do you have some anything online or are you just starting out or...?
6: Uh, it's a big company. We're working for a sport brand, um, surfing brand uh, called Tribor. So I think everyone knows it in, in France. Uh, and especially because here in Australia, surfing is way of life. So that's why we're coming for inspiring from this kind of way of life, of living.
1: So I suppose you're spending a lot of time at the beach.
6: Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, except today.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and what do you think of the beach fashions here in Australia compared to Europe?
6: Um... Compared to Europe, uh, it's kind of similar, nothing really new. Uh, the first, the only good different point is protection for the sun because we don't have the same problem in Europe. So we see like uh, kids and people just be careful with their skin. So there are more, more clothing for that. And uh, after, um, yes, because in Europe we have the winter and it's more colder. So all the, um, all the stuff for that is different.
1: And I suppose you don't have those stinging jellyfish and everything uh, No, yet. we
6: don't have, we don't have, of course. <laughs>
1: that's right, so you've got to look out for those over yeah, here, so definitely. And, shark
6: and things like that, we don't have. crocodile. No.
1: <laughs> that's right, well, spiders and snakes yeah, and all the rest. Yeah. No. So, oh, there's yeah, so all sorts fun. of fun. They're all friendly, really.
6: Yes, they are. It's okay. <laughs>
1: They're just a bit creepy, that's all. And um, tell us a couple of the other things, uh, your highlights, uh, while you've been here in 10 days. So Did you get out to the bush or anything like that?
6: Uh, we went to Melbourne. Uh, it was the best um, best place we see actually because it's a very, very beautiful city uh, with a lot of street art and very small, more smaller so for my, my point of view I prefer because it's more easy to find a way and, and all the districts are very different and very artistic and so I I really love Melbourne
1: Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an ex-Melbourne guy, 25 okay. years and I, I know that... Um, with the trams and the central city, yeah. it's really easy to get around and it's easy to get to the beach too.
6: Yeah, yes, it's very easy. We rent a car, so.
1: Oh, you rent a car, so yes, yes but the, the trams are very beautiful yeah, too. Yes, yeah, they
6: are, yes. But we try so. to catch one, but.
0: Jeff Harrison reporting from Sydney, and that's all we have for you on this month's edition of Travel Radio Australia. Thank you to everyone on the show, Jeff Harrison in Sydney and his guests. Peter Watson from Travel Writers Radio and his guest, Billy Rosenfeld. Francis Beasley all the way over in Padstow, England. And, of course, my old mate Ben Southall for taking the time to speak to us about his epic journey. We'll have Ben back on the programme within uh, the next few months or so to uh, tell us more about that trip and other things he's getting up to. That's all coming up in the near future. Until we meet again with another edition of Travel Radio Australia, I'm Ren Zwiers, wishing you all happy trails. You have been listening to Travel Radio Australia. The show was produced and hosted by Renn Veers. It can be played or downloaded from TravelRadioAustralia.com, TravelCastNetwork.com, the iTunes Store, or listen to the show on TuneIn Radio.